Within your Bible this evening, we would invite you to turn to the Epistle to the Colossians and to chapter 2. We'll be reading a short section, verses 11 through 15. If you're using your Pew Bible tonight, you can find this on page 1,354. After we read from the Word of God itself, we'll also be reading uh, from one of our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe faithfully and accurately summarizes the teachings of the Word of God. Uh, This evening will be in Lord's Day 26, and in the Forms and Prayers book in your pew rack, you can find this on page 228. As we make our way through the various doctrines or truths of Scripture, uh, we're beginning a section that deals with the sacraments, uh, more specifically with Christian baptism. So we've chosen to read from Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. There the Apostle Paul writes, speaking about Jesus Christ here, "...in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And thus far our reading from the Word of God this evening. We turn then to Lord's Day 26, uh, which has three questions. The first question, 69, asks, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? And the answer in this way, Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. Question 70 continues by asking, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And the answer to be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood, poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Question 71 concludes this Lord's Day by asking, where does Christ promise that we are washed with His blood and Spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? And the answer, in the institution of baptism, where He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and especially for a moment by way of introduction uh, to the boys and to the girls of the congregation, uh, I would dare say that most of you boys and girls have had your mother call you 
to the dinner table, but then when she saw you approach the dinner table, she may have said something to you along these lines. Make sure you wash your hands. Now, maybe it's just because the day went by and you had contact with various germs. Maybe now that it's the summer months, maybe you've been outside uh, playing. Uh, maybe you even helped uh, around the, the house or around uh, the farm or in the garden. And your hands, naturally, as you're playing or as you're, you're working, especially outside, they, they naturally get dirty. And so your mother, with her maternal awareness of this, she says, wash your hands. And you go over to the sink. And now this doesn't happen all that often for me, given the nature of my labors throughout the day, but there used to be a day when I would work with my hands out in the dirt, and my hands would be just absolutely filthy, just covered with dirt. And you know that you don't go over to the sink and you don't take your hands and wipe them on your shirt. Now, maybe some of you have tried that, and your mother quickly said, don't do that. Because wiping your hands on your shirt isn't really going to clean your hands. The only thing it does is makes your shirt dirty. But you put your hands underneath the water, and you rub them around, and you can almost sometimes, if they're dirty enough, you can see the brown water go down into the sink, down the drain, far, far, far away from your hands. And your hands are clean. That's a picture, boys and girls, and congregation, of what baptism points to. It's a picture of what the blood of Jesus Christ does not for our hands, but for our hearts. And I want to talk a little bit about this tonight, especially with uh, the boys and the girls, but all of us in mind, underneath this title or theme, Christian Baptism. And I want to try to explain what it means, the powerful picture that it shows. We'll look, first of all, at what we call the institution of Christian baptism, and then secondly, the symbolism in Christian baptism, and then thirdly, the relationship with Christian baptism. Now, maybe a, a young man or uh, a young girl says, well, those are some big, big words. Well, I would encourage you to try to follow along and I will do my best to explain them as simply as I can. Why is it that we baptize? It's not just an idea that we came up with. It's not just a practice that some men long, long, long ago came up with. And it's very important for all of us to be able to clearly identify and understand why we do what we do in our life together as a church, especially in our worship services, especially when we, when we come together. The reason that we baptize is not just because some men long ago had a neat idea, but rather that Jesus Christ told us to. That's what we mean by the institution of Christian baptism. The word institution has a meaning of an established law, practice, or custom. So we have an established custom that we have been, as a church, practicing 
for as long as we've been in existence. And it goes all the way back to Matthew 28, one of the last instructions that Jesus Christ gave to his church before he ascended into heaven was, go therefore, church, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And those are the words of the institution of this practice of Christian baptism. So the reason that we baptize is because Jesus Christ has told us, not merely suggested, maybe you want to do this, but he has commanded us to do this. And in all aspects of our church life, we seek to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, we're not pretending that we're perfectly obedient to Jesus Christ in all aspects of our life. That's part of the reason why we need this reminder of baptism. But we seek to be obedient to Jesus Christ, especially for his instructions for us as a church. And so Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, as the one who has purchased the church by his own blood, when Jesus Christ says to us, do something, we out of love for him, out of obedience to him, out of a desire to honor him and to follow him uh, with humble hearts, we ought to say, we will seek to follow your commands. And just a, a point on this importance of the institution, this is something that Jesus Christ said we ought to do until the end of the age. That phrase, the end of the age, applies to the entirety of human history from the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return. At that however many thousands of years, and no man knows the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man returns, we don't know when the end of the ages will be, we don't know when time will have exhausted itself, but we do know this, that beginning uh, and the very earliest stage of the New Testament church, baptism was administered and was applied to those who were brought into the church, and that practice continues and shall continue, and therefore should continue, until the head of the church returns, until the last person has heard the gospel who is an elect and comes to repentance and faith. And so, we press on uh, in this practice in part because of the command of Christ, but also in part because of the promise of Christ. And it's a wonderful thing that our Lord, when He gives a command, He so often attaches a promise to it. And the promise gives an explanation for the command, but also gives an encouragement to follow the command. Because we might step back and say, okay, we understand that we're to go and make disciples of the nations. We understand that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we might object and say, but these are difficult times in which we live. And one of the ways that Christians and churches are prone to compromise is by adjusting the institutions or adjusting the practices within church life, contextualizing. And so there's this danger of saying, well, maybe baptism worked in the days of Augustine. Maybe baptism worked in the days of Calvin. Maybe baptism was a good practice during the Reformation. Maybe baptism was a good practice in Pella, Iowa, under Scolti back in the 1860s. But times have changed, and now we are in the year of our Lord, 2023. And this is why we have this promise, Jesus Christ says, lo, I am with you always. 
And what this ought to do is give us a certain confidence to press on in the simple means of grace. Now, this applies more specifically uh, to the sacraments, but it could also apply to the preaching of the gospel. We don't need to contextualize and accommodate our culture in dramatic ways by inventions within church life. We just simply need to hold on to this promise. Lord, you have said you would be with us always, and you have commanded us to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you have also added this promise that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Just a note also to remind ourselves that our catechism is a summary of the Word of God, but at times it quotes the Word of God. Woven uh, right in the answer uh, is a reference uh, to the gospel according to Mark, uh, to Mark 16, uh, verse 16. Uh, This is found in answer 71. There is first the reference, the quote of Matthew 28, verse 19, but then comes Mark 16, verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And this is the simple message of the church. And now I know theologians quarrel back and forth over the whole term condition or the phrase condition, and I think I have a a certain understanding of the debate. We're not saying that this is any type of meritorious condition, but faith is necessary for salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But let the church also stand upon the authority of Christ and proclaim, whoever does not believe is condemned. Now, that's not an empty threat, nor is that a harsh threat, but it is a true statement. And the statement, whoever does not believe is condemned, is proclaimed in the day of grace so that we might exercise faith. Faith in the sum and substance of Christian baptism, Jesus Christ himself. And and so at a point of transition into our second point, uh, we can ask ourselves whether we are old, whether we are young, do we value the practice of Christian baptism? Now, a secondary question behind that or underneath that is, do we understand? Do we understand Christian baptism? Because you will not value it if you do not understand it, if you properly understand what it is that baptism symbolizes or signifies And if you understand why it is that we baptize, it's not just simply because some men thought it would be a neat idea, but rather because our risen Jesus Christ, having accomplished the work of salvation, has lovingly commanded us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because of the rich symbolism. And that's what we want to look at uh, in our second point. And here again, boys and girls, and 
I told you I would try to make some of these bigger words understandable. Symbolism, that means that the whole practice of baptism, it represents something. It shows you a picture of something. And so, if you think of the the last baptism uh, that you've seen, uh, and we pray that there would be more baptisms in our midst, so that in part, we might have the opportunity to apply the waters of baptism visibly in the midst of the congregation. But if you think of the last baptism that, that you saw, you saw it. Now, that's not just simply uh, an empty truism on my part. You visibly saw with your eyes something. Water. And that's the idea of this symbolism. That water showed a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. And and notice also how Christ-centered everything within the corporate life of the church is to be. When we preach, we preach Christ crucified. This morning, when we had the opportunity to administer the Lord's Supper, the elements testified to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we consider uh, the sacrament of baptism, it all points to the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like every single arrow of direction is focusing our attention upon the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, especially the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's what baptism represents. That's what baptism paints a picture of for us. Uh, And in part, and here come a couple more uh, bigger words, but as we begin to, boys and girls, grow in our understanding and our faith, one of the big words we use is justification. And, And what justification means is that because that Jesus Christ shed His blood, that all my sins, if I believe on Jesus Christ, all of my sins, all of the times in my thoughts and in my words and in the things that I did with my hands or my feet, or even the desires of my heart that miss the mark of God's holiness, that miss the mark of God's law, all of my sins have been washed away with, just like the dirt and the sand and uh, the grime on your hands after you've been outside in the garden or out in uh, the barn or wherever it is. When you go and you wash them away, all of that dirt, it's gone. And so the waters of baptism even in their silence, although sometimes you can hear the water of baptism, especially if certain ministers are applying baptism, they use an abundance of water. But all of it testifies to the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive all our sins. And that's what we call in part justification. And you notice that that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in verse 14 having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Well, what were these requirements? The law. And we missed every single one of them. And Jesus Christ knows that about us. He knows the extent of our sin even better than we know the extent of our sin. 
But the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so rightly understood, if Satan were to accuse you and say, look at your sins, you could rebuke him and say, Satan, you want to see my sins? You'll have to go outside the city of Jerusalem to a hill called Calvary. And you'll have to find the cross. And you'll have to look there because they're nailed there in the person of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the powerful reality that is testified to by the waters of Christian baptism. Do you see how trite other inventions in Christian worship are compared to that? The water of baptism says the sins of the people of God have been forgiven. Why would we ever want to substitute some other activity or some other invention beyond the simple preaching and the simple administration of the sacraments? This also brings about an exhortation for you and for me to believe. We speak about tangible or visible signs and seals that appeal to our senses. Believe your senses. Believe the word that you hear when it is in accordance with the Scriptures. Believe, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. But God knows our weakness, and so He doesn't just appeal to our sense of hearing. He comes and He appeals to our sense of sight and our sense of taste. And now we bridge a bit into the administration of the Lord's Supper. But all of these senses are appealed to, uh, and then comes this exhortation, believe. And not only in the washing with Christ's blood, which represents justification, but also the washing with Christ's Spirit, which represents sanctification. And we've said it before, we simply repeat it this evening, many, many a misbalance in theology and many, many an error or gross heresy will be avoided if we properly understand both justification and sanctification, but then also properly understand that they are never to be confused or blended together, nor are they ever to be separated. They are the dual benefits that flow out of union with Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. So if a person by faith is united savingly to Jesus Christ, they are both justified and simultaneously sanctified, although the ongoing process of sanctification continues throughout the duration of their life. We find reference to this aspect uh, of the work of Jesus Christ, for example, in verse 13. And so you notice the Apostle Paul weaves these two aspects closely together. And you, being dead, spiritually dead, that is, in your trespasses, another word for sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which represents uh, the filth of sinfulness. See, yes, we have the problem of sin by nature apart from God's grace, but even deeper, we have the problem of our sinfulness. 
How then do we deal with our sin and with our sinfulness? Verse 13, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so a word or two about this sanctification. It simply means to become holy, to be renewed spiritually so that we begin to have a right understanding We begin to have the right desires within our heart. And I stress the word begin because as a following Lord's Day will emphasize, in this life we only have the small beginnings of a new obedience. But we begin. We begin to follow new inclinations. So our words start to sound different. Our eyes look upon differing things. Our hands and our feet go about life a different way than what perhaps characterize our old selves. Is there evidence of new beginnings in your life? Evidence of having been washed by the Spirit's regenerating, renewing work? It's worth at least a momentary pause of reflection, but also then an encouraging exhortation. I know a man who served as an elder many a time, I don't know currently if he's serving or not, not in this congregation, in a different congregation, he would often say to me as he would say to his children, remember who you are, a Christian with clean hands, with a clean heart. And this, see, this puts the proper motivation before. It's not that we seek to be pleasing to God in order to have Him wash our hearts, but because He has washed our hearts. We seek out of thankfulness to Him to walk in newness of life and holiness of life because of the relationship that we have with him. And that's our third point, the relationship with Christian baptism. Baptism is a sign and a seal of salvation for those who believe, since those who believe have what theologians call a covenantal relationship with the triune God. Uh, The whole idea of covenant is woven all throughout the history of Revelation. And what exactly is a covenant, and especially the covenant of grace? It is not just simply some cold transactional relationship, but rather it is a bond, a bond of union, a bond of relationship, a bond of fellowship. Perhaps best represented in our earthly life with a healthy marriage between a godly man and a godly woman. Yes, they make vows and they exchange promises. And those vows and promises then serve as the foundation for the life that they spend together until death do them part. But a healthy marriage is a whole lot different than a business agreement because it has this warmth to it, or at least it should have this warmth to it. 
The two belong to each other. And this is what is testified to by the waters of baptism, which are the initiation ritual, if you want, uh, coming into the church. And this is what our children need to be taught in a comprehensive way. Whether it be in the home or in the school or in the church, they need to be taught that they are in a unique relationship with the triune God. And that that relationship has all sorts of implications in every single aspect of their life. That they belong to the Father by virtue of adoption with all of the rights and with all of the privileges that are connected to that relationship. You know, boys and girls, have you ever thought about it? Why is it that Every time there is a meal in your home, I mean, do you ask your dad or your mom if you can sit at the table? Do you ask your mom or your dad, say, you know, I don't know, but could I maybe eat here tonight? I bet most of you boys and girls don't ask. I hope you, you, know, you ask your mom for some food and, and thank her for the food, but I, I bet when it's supper time, I bet you just go to your chair, and you probably even have your chair and you sit there. Why? Because you're a son. Because you're a daughter. You have that right. You have that privilege because of who you are. We who believe and who have been baptized are the sons and daughters of the Father in heaven. That's why when Christ was asked, teach us how to pray, how did he instruct us to begin our prayer? Not far off in distant deity somewhere in the cosmos, but rather our Father. What a rich privilege is ours. And not only that, but then not only the name of the Father, notice it is a singular name, one divine essence, three distinct persons, there is also a unique relationship with the Son, the relationship of redemption. Uh, that's what especially is alluded to in our text in Colossians 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, in Him. This, I believe, is one of the favorite phrases of Paul's inspired pen, in Him. It points to what theologians call the doctrine of union with Christ. I am in him by virtue of this spiritual relationship that all of his benefits are mine. He's my savior. He's my substitute. He's my Lord. And the waters of Christian baptism testify that a large part of the benefit of having this relationship with him is he has forgiven me all of my trespasses. And I want to speak a word especially to perhaps a soul that is weighed down, a soul of a believer, a soul of a Christian perhaps that is weighed down by the sense of guilt, of sin. Do you believe the testimony of the Word of God and of the sacrament of Christian baptism? Not denying your sin, not minimizing your sin, not ignoring your sin, 
but humbly confessing your sin, do you believe the testimony that by virtue of your relationship with Jesus Christ through the simple exercise of faith, that he has forgiven you all trespasses? Is this not the most liberating message? And sometimes I find great benefit in focusing on the small but large words of the text. Because imagine the opportunity for doubt that would exist within our hearts if the text read, having forgiven you trespasses. Well, then there would be the lingering doubt, well, what about this trespass? What about that trespass? Maybe we could convince ourselves that He has forgiven us 99% of our trespasses, but what about the 1%? And it's almost as if the Holy Spirit foreknew the possibility for doubt to arise in our hearts and so inspired Paul to include the word all trespasses. You know, boys and girls, sometimes when you wash your hands, and you, you can wash them good, maybe you even use soap, hopefully you always use soap, but you look, I can think of my father-in-law's hands after years and years and years of construction labor, he can wash his hands, but the dirt is ingrained into the very flesh of his hands. Sometimes maybe you have that too, you wash your hands, but the dirt is stuck in there. That doesn't happen with the heart washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no remaining sin. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit uh, then indwells, takes up residency. What a wonder this is. And I was reminded this week in reading in a different connection that many of the most basic essential truths of the Christian gospel are far beyond our rationalistic comprehension. And we're not saying that the Christian gospel is irrational. We're just simply saying that some of the most basic truths far surpass our ability to comprehensively understand that the Spirit of God would dwell within me. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever found yourself alone? Have you ever been a bit either scared, a bit discouraged, a bit anxious, a bit alarmed because you sensed you were all alone? And maybe it was even in the busiest of places. Maybe you were one of those who were the lonely people. The Christian is never alone. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And think of what he is called in Scripture, the great comforter. The, 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 the paraclete in, in Greek, the, the one who, and it's a difficult word to comprehensively capture in, in one translated word, the, the the one who comes alongside of as an encourager, the Holy Spirit resides within the Christian. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have 
bonded themselves together with the Christian and with all of the Christians. And so while we recognize our time is gone, just simply a word that picks up what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, there is one baptism. Now, in a variety of administrations, we recognize we were not all baptized in one mass service. But if you are a Christian who has been baptized tonight, the same water baptized you as the Christian in front of you and behind you and to the right of you and to the left of you and on the other side of the sanctuary and in the balcony, wherever they may be. I simply stress this because there is the ever-pressing danger of a congregation to split up into factions. You can think of the Corinthian church, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus Christ, and Paul says what? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Apollos? Were you baptized in the name of Cephas? One faith, one Lord, one baptism. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we glorify your name for the great truths that are communicated to us within your word and also the great truths that are applied unto our hearts uh, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the preaching of Jesus Christ and also through the waters of Christian baptism. Uh, we earnestly ask, Lord, that you would give us a maturing understanding of the sacraments and especially also of Christian baptism. But we pray that in our understanding that our focus might always be fixed upon the center truth, that this sacrament points to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. And so may Christ, as in all things, have the preeminence. We pray this in his name. Amen.